the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to series two of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined for this series as I was for the last one by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, Jared. How are you? Ah, good. Good to get this going again. Yeah. So just as a reminder, the Forward Together podcast is produced by Hollywood Trust. Uh, we're a community relations focused community organisation based at the heart of Derry, London, Derry. And the podcast series is supported by the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland. Um, we're delighted that it is. And it also has a wee bit of money from the Reconciliation Fund for the Department for Foreign Affairs. Anyway, a series of focused conversations, again, increasing the civic voice and key issues that we face in Northern Ireland. And we're recording this at a time of crisis, Paul, and around the COVID-19, which is going to have a number of impacts on uh, our process here. So yeah. one of them being recording quality might be impacted. We're doing all this by Skype. Um, but it's also informed some of the conversations. Um, but we're still addressing some of the issues that w- remain important despite the, the, the current health crisis and economic crisis that we're facing. And Paul, before we get into it, since our last series, you have a new role and you might want to clarify a potential conflict of interest that may be there. Yes, at least it's a declaration of interest. So uh, I continue to write about accountancy and the economy. Um, I continue to do the occasional piece of broadcasting and I'm continuing to do some work for yourselves. But I am now part time working for Sinead McLaughlin uh, as a member of the Legislative Assembly. Uh, she is an SDLP MLA uh, who took over from Colm Eastwood for the Foyle constituency. Uh, so, yeah, that is a declaration of interest. So, uh, to the best of my ability, I have not allowed that to influence any of the recordings. Okay, well, congratulations on the new role is one of the things that we say as well. And, of course, Hollywell, as always, remains impartial and unbiased, and that's why we have this declaration at the very start. So, Paul, just before we get into hearing our first interview as well just a couple of wee reminders uh, about two publications that we've done arising out of series one the first of them being uh, the transcripts of the first set of interviews yes that's right uh, that is up on the hollywood world trust website which is the the, the full um uh, transcripts of of every interview we did on the first series we actually got in a professional transcriber who cl- cleaned up the automated software based uh, tr- transcriptions that we got so they are good quality and they're up on the Hollywood Trust as well as that I've tidied up the transcripts so that uh, they are in edited form based around uh, themes that we considered during the uh, the conversations and that will be published in book form uh, I hope in the fairly near future yeah yeah that's great Okay, so Paul, Series 2 is a wee bit different to Series 1 conversations as well. Series 1, we focused on four big questions, but this time around we're doing it slightly differently. Yeah, we're, we've pinpointed key experts in various fields, and we've gone in much more in-depth into talking about them. So we're trying to give a much clearer, rounded picture to listeners about the challenges in some of the key policy uh, areas that, that we're dealing with in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think, I think that gives a very good insight into to some of those policy challenges. Okay. And uh, speaking of policy challenges, uh, our first interview uh, to kick the series off is with Jess Sargent from the Institute for Government. 
That's right, yeah. She's based in London, but she did an important piece of work, which was actually based around looking at how Northern Ireland operated without a government. So it was looking very much at the three years between the times of there being an executive and assembly in place. But I think what she learned from that period applies just as much today with a renewed government as it did when the civil servants were managing Northern Ireland without a government in place. So it was a major piece of analytical study considering what the challenges, what the solutions uh, and how things were going in Northern Ireland. Okay, and there's a few things I, I think that I want to give people a heads up about. I think one of the really interesting things was uh, they noticed or through the report they reported an increased visibility and role of the civic society, particularly on things like the Brexit debate. Absolutely, yes. And I think that was clear from our own work, to be honest, uh, Gerard, mm. you know, that uh, there were those conversations going forward. And actually, the civil service themselves said that. I know from other conversations I've had outside of the, the series that people within the civil service said, well, because there weren't politicians in place, they felt it more important to listen to civic society and to find other ways of consulting with the public beyond the traditional political arena. Yeah, and I suppose something else that informed public sector decisions was evidence-based stuff, and GS points to that as well, and an increased role for evidence-based decisions. Yeah, and again, actually, that is one of the emerging themes from these conversations. There's actually the frustration of policy experts that there isn't evidence-based policymaking in Northern Ireland. And in that sense, they contrasted that with what happens in the three devolved nations within Great Britain and also with the Republic of Ireland, where there's a much greater emphasis on listening to experts, finding experts and taking advice from them. I, I suspect some listeners might actually question that in terms of Brexit and uh, what happened around that. But I think that we are hearing a very strong voice from the experts that we are interviewing, that they want to see more evidence-based policymaking in Northern Ireland. Hmm. A challenge but that Jess highlights is the, the lack of progress in any long-term public sector reform, but... Well, I think that's not surprising as well. Uh, and that clearly is a frustration from a number of people. And we've seen that in terms of the really poor indicators with the National Health Service in Northern Ireland, which has actually created a real challenge for dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. That um, mm. the, There was a report recently done by the new think tank Pivotal, which uh, has got a quite a good relationship with the Institute for Government, actually. And uh, Pivotal has been showing the, the really much worse outcomes in Northern Ireland in terms of waiting lists and waiting times compared with England. And, you know, there is a conversation, a political conversation going on in England about the fact that the National Health Service is not as equipped as people would want. But the situation is much worse in Northern Ireland. OK. Well, let's hear the interview that you had with Jess now. Hi, Jess. It's Paul Gosling here. Hi. And I'm following up, obviously, on your report from the end of last year when there wasn't a government in yes. Northern Ireland. We now have a government in Northern Ireland, but it seems to us that we should still learn both from the period without government and also in more general terms to reflect on what that tells us about how we make progress. So what do you think from the study you did that uh, we can learn from the period without government? Um, so there are a few perhaps kind of unintended consequences um, of, of the lack of government. I mean, obviously, a lot of them um, were negative. Um, 
obviously there was a big strain on public services um, because although civil servants could kind of keep the show on the road, their kind of lack of decision-making power meant that they couldn't uh, create long-term strategies and have that kind of long-term improvement that was needed. But actually, we kind of identified some perhaps more positive positive consequences of the absence of ministers, which you might not expect, um, and especially also within the context of Brexit. Um, so two of the things that we identified um, were that uh, civil society was a lot more kind of vocal than it previously had been when there had been ministers. Um, so a lot of uh, the business community um, and a lot of charities and human rights organisations were particularly vocal during uh, the Brexit period and the run-up to No Deal um, in kind of highlighting um, their particular concerns where perhaps that hasn't really been a feature of politics in Northern Ireland previously. Um, and we've actually seen that continue now that ministers have returned. Um, so for example, um, a lot of the um, Northern Ireland manufacturing groups um, and freight transport associations have been very vocal um, in the debate um, around the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's a really positive thing. Um, the other thing we identified, um, although obviously the civil service had a particularly difficult task in kind of trying to keep things running um, when there wasn't um, government, um, actually what they were able to do is to produce information that was very kind of fact and evidence-based about the consequences of Brexit and, and again in particular No Deal on Northern Ireland that wasn't perhaps uh, coloured by any political considerations. Um, and so those are two kind of features that actually is something that perhaps um, we should build on going forward um, in ensuring that civil society continues to have a voice and that the civil service is able to make these kind of quite frank assessments of conditions um, uncoloured by kind of political concerns. And of course we can't guarantee that there won't be another period without government in place at some point. But there's a contradiction between the, the positive message that you're giving there about the civil service and the, the negative criticisms uh, coming out of the, the uh, renewable heat incentive uh, inquiry. Yes, absolutely. And one of the, some of the issues that we identify in our report are also ones that have been identified um, by the inquiry as well. I mean, we obviously um, shouldn't pretend that, although the civil service has done a very good job of keeping things running while there weren't ministers, um, that there aren't areas for improvement there. Um, and so these are kind of some of the things that we identified um, in our report um, about improving kind of cross um, departmental collaboration, improving civil service capabilities. A lot of the kind of conversations that have been going on in Whitehall about ensuring um, expertise and project management skills and s similar things hadn't necessarily been going on at the same time in the Northern Ireland civil service. And in, uh, as opposed to Scotland and Wales, where which are technically still part of the UK Home Civil Service, Northern Ireland Civil Service is um, a completely separate entity, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you're aware. But that has some kind of um, implications for the skills that have been developed. Um, and so there's lots of room for improvement and a lot that has been done whilst this um, inquiry has, has been going on. Um, it's not that the civil service has just been kind of waiting for the outcome. There has been a lot of introspection um, and some thinking about how things can be improved. But certainly, yeah, there is also room for improvement in those areas. But where perhaps there's more room for improvement on an ongoing party basis is the relationship between the ministers. I mean, that's something that uh, you've suggested that uh, relationships are key, but clearly need to be improved. So how, how practically can either the, uh, the, the ministers and the parties themselves or else some external body 
get the ministers to work more effectively together and create uh, greater trust? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult question. And the thing we really highlight in our report, which is obviously um, had you know, aimed at a Northern Ireland audience, but also an audience in, in London or in, in England and the rest, of the, um, the rest of Great Britain, who might not be so aware of the very kind of unique circumstances of Northern Ireland government, in that the kind of power sharing arrangements are you know, almost completely unique as a system of government. And although they're necessary to make devolved government work, they also make devolved government very difficult. So it's no easy task. And I think we shouldn't um, underestimate uh, the challenge there. And actually, you know, although at times it hasn't worked, as we've seen, the fact that it works at all is, is quite remarkable and we shouldn't forget that. Um, but as you say, there's a lot that needs to be done to kind of support this kind of collective decision making. After all, these parties haven't necessarily chosen to go into government together. Um, you either choose whether you're in and out of government, but you don't choose who you go into government with. Um, on, one, on one level, kind of building those trusts and relationships between the parties is, as you say, a lot, a lot about kind of personal relationships and the need for kind of mutual respect. Although obviously RHI was the trigger for the executive collapse previously, um, we, we'd heard that, you know, there was a real um, decline in, in relationships beforehand because people didn't feel that there was this kind of parity of esteem between the parties. And now there's not a lot kind of institutionally that you can do um, to help that situation. It's really up to the parties there, but as you say, there are other things you can do to support um, ministers and government in decision making. Um, so one of the things that we recommend is a um, more kind of buttressing institutions, so kind of independent, impartial, evidence-based bodies who are able to examine policy problems and come up with, with solutions that isn't, isn't in a kind of political lens. If we look at one of the most successful areas of long-term reform um, in, in Northern Ireland previously, it's been in health, where there was a 10-year plan uh, produced just before the collapse um, of the executive. Um, and that was off the back of the Bengoa report, um, which was um, kind of independent expert. And that gives politicians kind of a bit of room to understand that these are that there are very difficult problems that need addressing and to kind of be able to point to an independent evidence-based um, body of work to put forward those solutions so it doesn't look like it's just coming off a kind of political um, agenda and that actually um, this is what's needed to address those long-term issues. But perhaps uh, there's an argument to say that even with something like Ben Gur, which brought in external experts, that needs to be further supported by something like a citizens' assembly to consider those, because the lack of faith, trust in politicians oh. in Northern Ireland is such that perhaps, as in the South, the, a, a citizens' assembly where you have non-party people saying, well, actually, the Ben Gur reforms are the necessary step forward, perhaps that would assist government in making progress? Absolutely. I think Citizens Assembly have a lot of potential um, in, in Northern Ireland that was really promising to see as part of the um, new decade, new approach deal that um, there was potential to commission a couple um, a Citizens Assembly a year as part of the, the Civic Forum. And um, as you say, in, in the Republic of Ireland, they've um, been very useful in getting past what have traditionally been incredibly difficult issues, issues that politicians don't feel able to make those bad decisions, uh, sorry, not bad decisions, um, those tough decisions, sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, 
project for Labour to make those tough decisions because they're perhaps concerned about what the public reaction might be, whether it's actually if you if you ask the public about those questions, if you get some citizens together in a room and ask them them to come up with a solution, perhaps sometimes you might be surprised. And it also allows um, those politicians, as you say, political cover to be able to make these decisions um, so that they have kind of public buy-in as well. But I mean, they're not um, a panchia necessarily, citizens' assemblies, and while it's proved that they're very effective for those that attend, there's also a lot of work that needs to be done to allow buy-in in the wider public. Um, obviously, in, in the Republic, there was the referendum um, in which the citizens' assemblies got, got a lot of attention. Um, but there, if, you, if you're just going to do it on a policy issue where you wouldn't have a referendum, for example, health reform, or maybe even kind of water infrastructure might be another issue. If that's seen as an issue where there's big, a big kind of political impasse on that. Um, is that you also need to work very hard to kind of involve the wider public um, and help them understand why a citizens' assembly has recommended what it has recommended. On the other hand, I mean, it feels as if the Irish government feels emboldened to take action on climate change because of the Citizens' Assembly there, which didn't lead to a referendum. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's in part because um, public trust and understanding of the processes had been so built up by these the kind of processes that did involve a referendum. Um, so, and I think the Citizens' Assemblies are becoming much more widespread in their use. They're becoming much more part of um, the kind of toolbox that are there for policymakers and politicians. Um, but there is still a lot of work that needs to be done um, to build trust in them in places like Northern Ireland and um, the UK in general, really, where traditionally they haven't been used um, at this level and on this scale, or by government, really. Or the Sc Scotland at the moment is just doing um, its citizens' assembly um, on Scotland's future. But that's the first time that a government has actually has actually used one. So I think there's a huge amount of potential there, and certainly this is something that should be, should be explored. Um, but there needs to be some thinking about how it will work um, as a whole. They shouldn't just be seen as a kind of easy solution. Now, the other thing you said in terms of uh, talking about buttressing the institutions is giving mm -hmm. greater strength and power to the assembly committees with taking more independent evidence. But the problem with the committee structure is that it's composed for the in main part of the parties that are also in government. So how do you get beyond that to, to give strength to the assembly's committees? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, it's a very difficult um, situation in that a lot of well, now especially we're back to a, a five-party government. Most of those parties are, are in Stormont. And so there's a tendency to kind of see um, the Northern Ireland Assembly as an extension of the executive as opposed to a kind of check on it. When people talk about Stormont, they generally mean it means both things. It means both the Assembly um, and, and the executive. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, to kind of allow the Assembly to uh, develop its own individual um, identity is kind of seen as, as a check and a scrutiny function rather than just um, a legislature in order just, just to pass that legislation that's needed. Um, again, that, that's not, there's not a simple solution to that. One of the things we recommend, um, and that was also recommended um, in the RHI inquiry report as well, is to um, ensure there are greater resources for committees. Um, so a lot of them are dealing with very complex issues, um, and especially in Northern Ireland, um, where the committees have a role scrutinising legislation. 
actually, in terms of research resources, they have far fewer resources than are available to Westminster committees. Westminster committees tend to have a couple of subject specialists um, who are able to advise the committee, whereas the Northern Ireland committees generally rely on the kind of general research services. So that's one thing that could be done to sort of empower those committees to kind of look at these issues. Because there's a tendency to see scrutiny by, by parliaments in general or committees as well as a kind of political point scoring adversarial kind of trying to stop the government doing what it what it wants to do when actually the purpose of scrutiny is is just to improve policy to improve legislation and government should should be welcoming that they should they should want their you know their legislation or their policies to be as robust as possible and for any issues to be identified and ironed out at an early stage so it also requires a change in mindset um, from the executive as well. One of the things we heard while doing the research for this report is that ministers just didn't take parliamentary committees very seriously, that they quite often didn't show up or cancelled hearings at last minute. So it, it, it takes both um, an increase in resources in the Assembly, but also for the executive to welcome this form of scrutiny, especially in light of RHI, when some of these um, some of these issues could have been identified at an earlier stage if the mindset had been different. Um, it requires them to take it more seriously. Yes, because the RHI inquiry criticised the, the way committees work in actually getting the evidence from the departments that they're scrutinising, and without oh. external research support, then it's difficult to see how that creates a, a structure of accountability. So how do you think you could actually change things in ways that enable the committees to take external support and advice so uh, yeah as, as i said before kind of uh, resources is one of them and that quite often does mean does mean money um i think one of the other things is um one of the things we identify in our report is the kind of lack of uh, external policy community in, in Northern Ireland, although we welcome uh, Pivotal, the new think tank mm. that's just been established. There aren't necessarily those organisations like the Institute for Government um, kind of looking at what government's doing and being able to give evidence to that, those committees. Um, so one of the things we recommend is that actually organisations based um, in different parts of the UK, be it Scotland, Wales or England, should be taking an interest in these issues as well and should be willing to go over to Belfast and give evidence to these committees as well so that they have kind of more access to experts um, from that way as well. Mm, that sounds good. And you also say there should be uh, wider public sector reforms taking place. I mean, clearly Bengoa began the process but actually hasn't got very far. I mean, what, what other public sector reforms would you like to see in place? I mean, a lot of them are kind of very specific um, to the Northern Ireland context, although we look at the kind of how I'm not as familiar with each individual policy area, but issues that have been kind of raised to us um, throughout this report um, have been uh, education. Um, a lot of what we've been uh, hearing is that there's been there's very much duplication of, of resources um, in terms of uh, schooling um, and such like, and that there needs to be a, a lot of reform um, to kind of streamline that and make it more efficient. Um, another area is infrastructure um, that often and gets brought up, particularly water infrastructure. Um, this uh, executive has made it clear again that they don't intend to uh, introduce domestic water charges, um, unlike the rest of um, the UK. But if, if that is 
going to be the case and there needs to be more thinking about how you can fund uh, water infrastructure in, in the long term. Are there kind of other solutions that you could look at? Um, I mean, so those are just kind of two areas that were raised quite strongly uh, to us in the course of this research. Um, but generally, one of the biggest consequences we identified um, of the absence of government is the um, the lack of progress in any kind of pub long-term public sector reform. Um, the civil service just had to focus very much on keeping the day-to-day -day, um, administration running. Um, and so that will be a big challenge of the executive um, going forward. And we can't pretend that that's not going to be a harder job now. Um, you know, they've got a much, a much bigger intray and the consequences of, of the lack of government over the last three years are going to continue um, to be shown as time goes on because a lot of them are kind of implications for the lack of long-term decision-making. Yeah, and there's a backlog of tasks because the yeah. assembly hasn't been working and also there's a shortage of staff in key areas because they didn't staff up when the assembly wasn't working and there wasn't any obvious uh, prospect for it to, to resume. I mean, on the point of, of, of school reform, I, I saw this week that it's been uh, revealed that there's 60,000 surplus places in Northern Ireland schools and when the school po pupil population is 350,000. So that's a significant oversupply of school provision compared with the actual needs of the people population. Uh, and of course, the other point you mentioned about water infrastructure, um, the uh, it's been considered about whether it should be copying the, the Glass Cymru structure, uh, but not necessarily to increase the rates burden, but actually just to have a, a separate uh, demarcated supply of tax revenues that could then be borrowed against. Yeah, so as you say, there are kind of uh, there is some thinking going on about this, and there are alternatives um, if, if certain issues don't want to be addressed. But I think the tendency, and this is absolutely not unique to Northern Ireland, it's uh, you know if you look at social care here, here um, in in the UK government. Um, the tendency is when a problem is kind of too difficult, is is just to do nothing, um, and in the long term, that that doesn't work. <laughs> And equally, the, 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 the history of the Tony Blair government was that if you had a problem, you reformed the sector, but it didn't necessarily resolve the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, these are you know, problems of governments that are certainly, certainly not unique. Yes. You, one of the things you say that is unique is that Northern Ireland is more centralised than Great Britain. Can you, can you provide some examples about that? Um, so in terms of... Uh, was, was that in terms of the balance between uh, local government and central government? I'm not sure. I, I, in, your, in the summary of your document, you, you refer to the fact that Northern Ireland has a more centralised structure of governance uh, than the rest of the UK. Um, right. Yes, so I think this is in terms of uh, kind of the government's landscape. Um, so a lot of powers that are usually held um, by local councils, particularly in planning, um, are done by the Department of Infrastructure um, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and that means that, well, it was a particularly big problem um, when there was an absence of, of government in that a lot of those decisions um, couldn't be made. Um, but also... Uh, just in terms of the kind of workload um, of central government and also indeed the assembly, you know, where there are decisions of, of planning, there's um, a kind of greater potential uh, for, for uh, specific MLAs to kind of uh, advocate for their particular area. Uh, the politics in a way becomes more, more localised in kind of uh, wanting to uh, 
uh, get things for the constituency you represent rather than kind of looking uh, more generally across across government um, and thinking about what would work best for kind of Northern Ireland as a whole. Um, so that's one of the issues um, we raise um, and to kind of look more about whether that, um, that system, whether powers are exactly where they should be or whether actually there are some powers that should be returned um, to local government there's obviously good reason why originally they were taken into the kind of into the central northern ireland executive um, based on kind of concerns about um, community representation and such like but given that councils have been able to operate effectively throughout the whole three years of the absence of government um, we recommend that it might be time to kind of look again as, yeah, as to whether powers are sitting rightly where they should do or whether they could be, uh, they could be more could be kind of devolved to a local level. Because the obvious ones would be both housing and social care would be under the control of local government in Britain, whereas they're not yeah. in Northern Ireland. Absolutely, absolutely. And it might, might be that in some circumstances, especially potentially around social care, there's big problems with social care being um, part of uh, local government remit here. Um, but certainly we, we recommend a, re a review to just look at all these things holistically, things that might have kind of for particular reasons at the time been been put at a certain level just to look at it again and, and look at whether those whether those um, powers are, are where they should be and it's an interesting thought actually that one of the criticisms in Britain is that uh, social care being under control of local government it doesn't work uh, and uh, the health services prioritized over social care so there's an argument for integrating them whereas in Northern Ireland they are integrated and you actually still have the same problems that the money goes to the acute services not into social care so actually yeah. restructuring doesn't necessarily solve the underlying problems absolutely and i think one of the, the other things we recommend in our report um, is to kind of learn lessons from from different parts of the uk and you know when devolution um, was first introduced for scotland and wales one of the big arguments was that it could be this kind of policy lab where you could try different things in different parts of the uk and see what what works well um, and that's something i think we're perhaps um, as, as a whole, not particularly good at, um, but there are real opportunities here to compare different approaches that are taken and come up with good policy solutions. But that relies um, on on the four governments of the UK and indeed um, in Northern Ireland, um, kind of learning lessons from the Republic, in which in some cases there may be more more parallels. Um, sharing information and sharing experiences um, and figuring out what will work best for them. Now, one of the other things that you said, Jess, is that uh, the power sharing was designed to foster cooperation in a divided society, and without it, there is a long-term risk of deterioration of community relations. And in a sense, that did happen without government because of the, the tensions around Brexit, which was see, very much seen yeah. as a, a green and orange issue. Um, uh, to what extent do you think the, the re re renewal of government in Northern Ireland will improve community relationships or do you think the indications are at least at this early stage that actually the tensions between ministers means that it's a further stage in damaging community relations i mean it, it's hard to tell kind of exactly what would happen and again being based in london i'm i'm cautious that i can't uh, comment uh, too much um, on the kind of general sense and, and mood etc uh, but one of the things that that was made one of the points that was made quite strongly to us while researching this report is the kind of value of having the first minister and the deputy first minister going on international trips and both representing northern ireland um, is that actually symbolically uh, that has a huge effect 
and can be very good for kind of helping um, helping the communities heal. Unfortunately, uh, the recent trip to uh, Washington uh, for the First Minister, Deputy First Minister was cancelled um, for a very good reason, um, obviously. Uh, but that these are, you know, the symbolism shouldn't be kind of underestimated. Um, and when when things are working well, that can kind of prove um, that uh, that that things can work. Um, I think. The problem of the absence of government was this also the fact that the parties were perhaps more openly criticising each other than, than they perhaps would have if they were in government together. And as you say, with Brexit, that was a real kind of catalyst um, in, in this issue, um, and particularly the DUP's relationship um, with the Conservative Party. Um, there was perhaps a kind of blame culture um, from the other parties um, for the eventual deal um, that's been reached. I mean, it's I think so far, from, from what I can see from a kind of outsider, um, things seem to be looking positive. Um, the parties are unanimously united against uh, the Prime Minister's deal. I mean, uh, short term, that's, that's a kind of uh, a sense of unity. In the longer term, obviously, uh, being united against something is not necessarily going to sustain in the long term. There need to be kind of more wider cooperation. Um, but in the short term, I think um, things are looking promising. Um, obviously, be interested to hear, hear your views um, being a lot closer to the situation than I. Well, there's quite there's some significant tensions and differences over coronavirus, which is because the Irish yes. government and the British government are taking different approaches, mm -hmm. and that feeds into the political system within Northern Ireland as well. And and really, my last question to you, Jess, is the fact that. We're talking around these issues about the fact that there's the history of two traditions. But what the Good Friday Agreement fails to recognise, because things have moved on since then, is the extent to which we now are a more pluralistic society. It's not simply the two societies, the two communities. And I wonder to what extent we need to rethink the structures of Northern Ireland to reflect that greater diversity of background and attitudes than when the Good Friday Agreement was reached. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the, the latest Northern Ireland Life and Time survey found that 50% of people uh, identify as neither um, nationalist or unionist. Um, and so the demographics, as you say, are, are very much changing. I mean, we were quite careful in our report not to comment on uh, the Good Friday Agreement and any of the kind of arrangements that were made by that, because we don't feel like it, it's our place to do that. Our focus was really thinking about how you can support ministers um, and improve governance. Um, but I think that is a conversation that, that will need to be had and that will become more urgent. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to do that because obviously it would require um, changing the Good Friday Agreement, mm -hmm. um, which, is a, which is an international treaty. Um, but I think certainly, so in terms of actual reforms, that might be um, a little way off, but certainly that conversation needs, needs to be happening. It needs to be happening now. And that is actually a prime example of where that, situate, that conversation needs to involve citizens. Um, needs to involve um, potentially citizens' assemblies um, because that is about the fundamental uh, ways that, that people are governed um, and it's very important to include them in those conversations. Jess Sargent, thank you very much indeed. That's very helpful. Thank you. Okay, an interesting conversation there with Jess. Some of the other points Paul they pick up on that he's talked about was decentralising decisions and that this seems to have both advantages and disadvantages. Yes, absolutely. Um, in a way, 
it, I, I think that is it, again, it comes back to some of this evidence-based policy making. You have to mm. understand why decisions are being taken and for whose benefit they are. Um, and it, it does very much seem to me that Northern Ireland has a real struggle in dealing with devolved decision making because so much was passed on to the heads of local politicians without those relationships being there in advance. And those relationships don't really seem to have improved since the creation of devolved government. And I think without relationships, it's very difficult to get government to work. Yeah. One of the other things that, that Jess talked about with you was about we seem to be missing an opportunity here for the policy lab approach for maybe learning from each of the regions about how best we could address some issues and sharing that learning and, and implementing change in other places. That doesn't seem to have happened as was intended. And worse than that, we not only have we not learned, we've actually made things worse. As, I mean, the obvious example is with RHI, Renewable Heat Incentive, where basically Northern Ireland implemented the scheme that was adopted in England, but took out the safeguards in changing it. And mm. it remains unclear, despite the, the Sam McBride book and despite the inquiry by Lord Coughlin into it, uh, sorry, Sir Patrick Coughlin into it. I mean, it's still unclear as to why the civil service and the, the uh, special advisors and the, the politicians in Northern Ireland would have taken out the, uh, the, the, the safeguards. So th yeah. you certainly got that. But the other aspect of that, as well as the, the issues around special advisors and the relationships with politicians, is the fact that you didn't have the operating structures of the committees within the assembly to safeguard good governance. And I think that's one of the other points that Jess is really emphasizing, the fact that uh, in the House of Commons, you have select committees that are very strong, that are real challenge to politicians that don't let them get away with anything. But you don't have that same structure within Northern Ireland. Firstly, the assemblies are serviced by the departments that they're monitoring, so they don't get that impartial advice that you get within Westminster. And secondly, because all the main parties are in government in Northern Ireland instalment, you have really these... Vested uh, interests within the political parties of not rocking the boat. So again, you don't have that level of scrutiny or challenge within the committee structure of the assembly that you do within Westminster, and you can see the difficulties that's caused with renewable heat incentive, but probably with quite a lot of other things as well. Mm, okay. Well, a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Paul, for carrying it out with Jess, and thanks as well to Jess for taking the time uh, to have the chat with Paul. Um, next week or we plan to release these on a weekly basis as we did for series one and next week we will have an interview with Siobhan O'Neill and Paul that, that interview is going to be pretty timely Absolutely because um, although we're talking about the physical health of people during COVID-19 just as important is protecting people's mental health and Siobhan gives us a conversation not just more broadly about mental health but also how to protect your mental health during the COVID-19 lockdown. Well, thanks again. Thanks to everybody that was involved in this episode. And we'll talk to you all again soon. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.